one experience in particular in the book where your bully asked you in front of the entire class, were you gay? Yeah, and that was really hard because it was exposing. It was almost like he'd reached into me and ripped out my insides and was dangling them around for everybody to see. It was really hard to know how to react and I hated him in that moment. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the new series of I'm Coming Out, the podcast where people tell me, Johnny Harvey, their coming out stories. And this week's guest is Mossen Zeddy. Mossen was born the eldest son of devout Shia Muslim parents in a deprived area of East London. Growing up in a religiously conservative household, his immigrant parents expected that upon reaching adulthood, he would find a suitable Muslim girl to marry and settle down. But Mossen harboured a secret. He was gay. In a community where homosexuality was almost unimaginable, Mossen struggled with his sexuality alone for years. In spite of the personal challenges he faced, Mossen flourished academically and later professionally. He became the first person from his comprehensive school to attend Oxford University and is today one of Britain's top criminal barristers. He has twice been ranked in the Financial Times' outstanding list of future leaders. His memoir's Dutiful Boy was released at the end of last year and has been met with unanimous praise in the media and rightly so. I read it a few months back and it really is brilliant. It was named by GQ, The Guardian and The New Statesman and on lots of other year-end lists as one of the best books of 2020. Attitude have also named him as one of their 100 LGBTQ plus trailblazers whose contributions are changing the world. The interview was recorded back in October. I've been so flooded with work myself, so I'm only getting the chance to actually edit the whole series now. When I interviewed Mossen back then, we chatted about why his entire year were stopped and searched on their last day of school, how his home was petrol bombed in a racist attack after 9-11, the racism which exists within the gay community, the spiritual pilgrimages he took abroad in the hope of changing his sexuality, why his father at first reacted to his coming out by bringing a witch doctor to the family home to change his son's sexuality, and Mossen's family's journey to acceptance and how they are now even helping him plan his wedding to his fiancée. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at I'm Coming Out Pod for episode updates. And if you've any feedback from me or if you've any suggestions for future guests, please email me at johnny at imcomingoutpod.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating, review and subscribe as it really helps me and other people to discover the podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening and here it is. Hello, Mawson. Welcome to my podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So how are you at the moment? Are you busy doing lots of book promo? Are you enjoying your new career as a critically acclaimed author? <laughs> well, you know, I can't really complain. It's been uh, it's been lovely, the response. Uh, but, you know, I still am a practicing barrister. So so my legal work takes up most of my time and the book stuff has to fit in wherever I have space. So this is your side hustle. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Although I'm not sure. I mean, hustle tends to imply that you're going to get some sort of financial reward, and anybody who's written a book will tell you that you're not doing it for the money. It takes time. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe in the years to come, it could possibly. Well, who knows? Yield I mean, huge you know? financial re- rewards. Yeah, I mean, you know, I did. I didn't write this book uh, for money. I mean, obviously, I got paid to do it, but I didn't do it for the money. <laughs> I did it for other reasons. So it doesn't. It doesn't matter that much. Uh, hopefully, it will be a success in terms of the message of the book getting out. And that's way more important to me than anything else. I wanted to ask you now, what do you see yourself as professionally? Because I noticed on your social media, you listed writer first and then barrister. That's predominantly because um, I did actually delete all my social media a few years ago, my social media accounts. And then because of publishing a book I was told that it was really important for me to go back on so when I was writing that biography I I knew that the predominant purpose for the social media platforms was to promote my writing career and that's why writer is um, listed there first okay I'm just reading too deeply into it Moss and forgive me (laughs) so your memoir A Dutiful Boy I absolutely loved it I read it in two sittings a few weekends back It was really moving, really, really emotional. And I wanted to know what was the initial motivation behind writing the book for you? Well, when I was about 13 years old, I I remember creeping down the stairs to uh, at nighttime while I thought that my family were asleep upstairs to surreptitiously watch Queer as Folk, which is written by Russell T Davies. And... I remember seeing it advertised everywhere and just knowing that there was something in it that I had to try and see for myself. And that experience was transformative. And it, and it really was the first sense I had that, um, that I was different in some way. And I guess it made me feel a bit less isolated. And so and the book, my book, is dedicated in part to young people and the, the kind of inscription, the dedication reads to all those young people struggling with their identity, you are not alone. And so the primary motivation behind writing it was to try and help somebody who is kind of 20 years behind me feel less alone. Yeah, I think watching Queer as Folk, that was a real coming of age moment for a lot of gay people of our generation, wasn't it? I remember watching the first episode so clearly myself. Yeah, I, I think that that experience of of watching something so radical for its time, I guess, it really did resonate. But but that's the point, right, is it was something unique. And unfortunately, I think that in some ways, there are themes from my book, which are, are somewhat not unique, but they're, they're not really spoken about very much. And that was one of the reasons for, for writing it. To push the conversation further along. And I imagine it was hard to revisit all those painful experiences during the writing of the book. So I don't think I will ever have to write a memoir, but I imagine for someone doing it, that's one of the reasons I wouldn't want to to do a project like that. So how was that for you? It was difficult at times. There were moments where I was sat at my computer and I was moved to tears. Um, you know, for example, I remember mm. writing about that the day my house was petrol bombed by in a racist attack, and I got really emotional 
because I could recognize just how much uh, PTSD, so post-traumatic stress disorder, Mm. that we all still suffered from, even to this day, around safety of the family and how vulnerable we were. So there were some really difficult times, but it felt like a real privilege to to be given the space and the time um, to write it. Yeah, that's such a harrowing experience to have lived through and it must have left serious long-term scars for yourself and for your whole family. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. So I know I'm no literary expert, but I think the one thing that really struck me about the book is that it's so well written. The it, How you bring experiences and emotions to life through words is incredible. So when did you discover that you had this writing talent? Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. And I guess one of the jokes I make is that probably the most British thing about me is my inability to accept comp- compliments. Um, so that thank you. You must know it's really well written, though. I mean, it, it is quality. Thank you. It's, you know, it's difficult because I've written, I've read it about 200 times. And that is probably not um, an overestimation. So by now, uh, to me, it's very difficult to read it and not be bored out of my mind. <laughs> but I think that the, res- the response that I have received from individual readers and from, you know, people like The Guardian and The Dimes has been overwhelmingly positive, which is this is really humbling. And um, so I guess I can now accept that it is well written, but it's very difficult for me to, to say so. And in terms of, you know, answering your question about did I know, the answer is no, I didn't know that I, I had a writing talent. I guess in some ways I still find it hard to acknowledge. Um, the way that this book came about was I entered a writing competition and ended up being one of the winners. But along the way, before you get to the kind of shortlist, you speak to an editor about your work. And she was giving me all this feedback about, you know, structure, et cetera, et cetera. And she asked me at the end of the 20 minute session whether I had any questions for her. And I said, yeah, does it sound like a book? Should I give up my day job or should I not give up my day job? And you can be completely honest. And she was a bit startled by this question because essentially what I was saying was, can I write? And her answer was resoundingly yes, which was really encouraging. But um, it meant that I didn't really know that I, I could write until recently. And, and still to this day, I get I get anxiety about whether or not I can call myself a writer. That's really interesting. But as you mentioned there earlier, you've got rave reviews from The Guardian and from The Times, and they are some pretty tough critics to impress. And I was wondering also, I have loads of questions for you. I was wondering... Is there anything, because obviously you're hugely successful in your legal career, you're an Oxford graduate, you're a criminal barrister, and now you're an acclaimed author. Is there anything you're not good at, (laughs) Mossen? Oh my God, there are so many things that I am not good at. I'm terrible at cooking. I uh, I cannot sing to save my life. I am very impatient. I think that I have learnt recently that I'm not always right but as a lawyer that is a very difficult thing to say <laughs> um mm. there, there, I mean there are so many things that that I am not good at I think one of the concerns I have is around the idea that I'm presented as some sort of perfect human being because I have so many flaws um, and things that I've failed at and it's really important to say so because otherwise you push this idea 
of perfection and some has some some sort of superiority that is just false. The thing about writing an, uh, a memoir is you're in charge of what goes in and what doesn't. And obviously, there are plenty mm. of things that that I've done that I think actually I, I don't really want to talk about that because it makes me look terrible. Because you know, like when you're younger and the way you treat people when you when you're first in the like dating world, particularly as a young gay person. Mm. you know it takes a while to to learn how to 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 have proper conduct of yourself with integrity so I've kind of waffled on a bit here but yes there are so many things that I am not good at no I'm sure everyone can relate to that we all have moments we look back on and would probably rather erase from our memories but I also wanted to mention about the school teacher in the English teacher in your grammar school who discouraged you for doing English for your A-levels because you hadn't yeah. read any books during the summer. Basically, I, I don't blame him for, for, for this, but essentially I started English A-level and on day one, the teacher went around the room and asked everybody what they had read over the summer. And instead of lying, I was honest and said I hadn't really read anything because I didn't grow up reading. Um, we didn't grow up in a mm. household of readers and the other problem was I found it very difficult to sit still because my mind was always occupied with mm. stuff that was troubling me. So I was honest and and he asked me to stay back at the end of class and told me that I should uh, drop the subject. And so I did. Yeah, it's incredible how teachers can get things really wrong, isn't it? And how, you know, over time, as you go through life, you can really get to know yourself better and you discover yourself and more and you get a better understanding of what where your strengths and weaknesses are yeah I mean you know I am a massive advocate for teachers I I, I acknowledge that that that, that um, story make might suggest the opposite but <laughs> I, I don't blame him and I think that the only reason one of the only reasons I am where I am today is because of the wonderful support and nurturing that I received from so many teachers along the way. I had one teacher who helped me write the application for a grammar school because I had no idea how to write one. Another mm. teacher who called me during Easter break and said, you've got 53 out of 54 for your GCSE science coursework because of mm. one spelling mistake. If you want to fix it, I would love to come in to school and you can bring me a fresh copy of your report. You know, so there was so, there were, and then I have countless examples of teachers who have helped me uh, all the way through to university. Um, and, you know, I, I don't blame that teacher for for his reaction. I guess in similar circumstances, I might have reacted the same. I love that story of your science teacher ringing you up to to change your scores just so it could be perfect. That's brilliant. So let's go back to the very beginning. So you come from a Pakistani Shia Muslim background, the eldest of three boys. You grew up in Walthamstow. They call it Awesomestow now as well, don't they? Uh, they do. I'm not sure I would necessarily yeah. join that chorus. <laughs> uh, so it was um, obviously it was a very religiously conservative background. So what was your awareness of homosexuality growing up? Very limited understanding of what it was. It wasn't something that was even in our vocabulary. So it's kind of weird because you don't know what it is, but you know that you can't be it. Uh, and I haven't fully wrapped my head around how that is possible, but it is and was. So that 
there was a very limited understanding. And then obviously queer as folk came along and changed things slightly. But then the internet came along and I could suddenly Google things and go into chat rooms. And I write about this in the book is, is going into chat rooms at the age of kind of 15, looking for people like me um, and having a brief conversation with an Indian guy in Canada and feeling really alone because I realized I was staring at a screen and not another person. So the answer is is limited because there wasn't any social media at the time. But you were aware there was some homophobia in your surroundings and in school. You heard of it there also, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that homophobia was such an entrenched part of society at large back mm. then. For example, yeah. when I was 16 years old, um, if I'm not mistaken, it, the age of consent between for heterosexuals was still different. So for us, it was 18, whereas for heterosexuals, it was 16. So yeah. and that was when I was 16 years old. So that, that was Tony Blair's government who brought that in, wasn't it? I can't remember the year. That, I think they equalised it. Yeah. So they, yeah. they they lowered it. I mean, that was late 90s. I might I don't. Yeah, it probably was Tony Blair. So yeah. So the whole, I think there's been such a drastic shift in the political discourse when it comes to LGBT equality, and um, for the better, for the most part. But back then, it wasn't. It wasn't like that. And you experienced quite a lot of physical bullying at school. There was one experience in particular in the book where I had the same experience, quite a similar one, where your bully asked you in front of the entire class, were you gay? Yeah, yeah. And that was really hard because it was exposing it was almost like he'd reached into me and ripped out my insides and was dangling them around for everybody to see. Mm. It was really hard to know how to react. And I hated him in that moment. Yeah. Because that was the part of the book for me that I found hardest to read because it really, really hit home. It's that horrible feeling of being very exposed and naked in front of a whole group of people. And you also mentioned in the book about your last day of school. So just to give the listeners an idea of some of the social problems in your area at the time, can you share the story with us about what your last day of school was like? So my school had quite significant amounts of um, gang violence, uh, particularly between the kind of the, the Pakistani kids and the black kids. And the teachers were worried that it would erupt on the final day of school, which is supposed to be a Thursday. And so out of the blue, on the Tuesday, the last week of school, the teachers called us into a sports hall that's at the end of the school, kind of towards the entrance. And they said their goodbyes and said that they were le- that we would be leaving today. They surprised us because they didn't want to run the risk of kids knowing it was the last day and bringing weapons into school and you know beating each other up so they told us goodbye then we left the school out of the car into the car park um where there were police waiting to stop and search each of not all of us but some of us yeah so that was my last day of school (laughs) and nobody had any inkling that that was going to happen no 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 it was a surprise to me and to be honest i was I was probably one of the ones that they would describe as teacher's pets. So if I didn't know, I'd be surprised if anybody else did. And something I found really remarkable and really commendable on your part, 
you are now on the board of governors of your old school. So I know for a lot of gay people, they've got quite a checkered relationship with their old school and they can feel somewhat resentful to that period in their life. So how did you get to that place of making peace with those experiences? You know, I think that for me, the experiences at school were formative. They helped give me the thick skin that I have today. But I can't, I don't know. I mean, I I just don't blame anybody. I guess maybe one of the reasons why I thought it was important was because I was, you know, the first person from that school to to go to uh, Oxford, as far as I'm aware. And I think I really realised just how unfair our society is you know going from uh, going from where i went from to to a place like oxford it just more than anything i just felt a sense of injustice for all the people i'd grown up with even the ones who'd not been very nice to me um and so i think that 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 sense of injustice is what really drove me to become a governor because i just don't think that we should live in a society where basically your outcomes in life are so predetermined by where how wealthy you are. Hmm. And now more than ever before, and the research into it is overwhelming, isn't it? I mean, there's very few people who are crossing over between the categories, aren't there? Yeah, I think that, you know, whilst we are making progress on lots of fronts with diversity, albeit slow progress, the one area that seems to be getting actively worse is the divide between rich and poor and so i mm, think yeah the the issue of class is to my mind not given anywhere near enough prominence in our discussions about identity yeah i don't have the statistics at hand but i've read a bit about it and how you know the vast majority of the top jobs in the country are the top um, CEO positions and uh, our political elite have all went to the same university. They've all been to the same secondary schools. And then also since the 1970s and the 1980s, the wealthy in society have become far, far richer than ever before. The divide between the top and the bottom has really expanded, hasn't it? Yes. And it extends beyond business and politics. So Right. If you are privately educated, you're way more likely to win an Oscar. You're also way more likely to win a Brit Award. So yeah. it creates everything. Because how else are you going to afford drama school? Who else, who can really afford to go for four years for intense training and then, you know, and then the work afterwards is so unstable? Precisely. Also the media industry, because I remember my friend, my Irish friend, always she works as an editor in London and she was saying to me that the media industry is really a rich kids industry because you have to work for especially becoming a journalist. You would have to work for maybe a year unpaid and then your starting salary is really low. It's just enough to survive on and especially in London because London is so expensive. So how could anybody do that unless there's you know, huge financial resources. And it is really sad to see. Yeah, and I think that it's important that we do discuss that more more and more because, um, as I said, I think that's the one area where things are getting worse rather than better. 
Yeah. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent now, but you kind of really notice it in the arts. There's that richness and diversity is missing. You know, it just feels like it's the same person all the time. So my favorite question I'm going to ask you now. So who were your secret gay teen crushes when you were growing up? <laughs> oh, a question I can enjoy. Um, yeah, we'll lighten the mood. Yeah. Uh, so Paul Nichols, who was in the EastEnders. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Charlie Hunnam, who was yeah. in the folk. And then... Who else did I have a... I'm trying to think. I saw Paul Nichols the other day somewhere. Oh, did you? He's on some TV Uh, show. He's still acting. Oh. You know, I'm going blank now because um, it's difficult for me to, to remember. God, actually, you know what? I've gone completely blank as to names. Um, it's okay. Sorry, don't worry. sorry. They're two very good ones, though. They're much cooler than mine. And so, back to the serious questioning now. So, you really struggled with your sexuality and you were really tortured by it. And you even traveled abroad to visit Islamic religious pilgrimage shrines in hope of having your prayer of becoming straight answered, didn't you? Yeah, I did. One of the working titles for the book was 11,000 Prayers because I Mm. calculated that between the ages of 13 and 19, praying five times a day, I would have um, asked to be cured about 11,000 times. Um, And yeah, I went on pilgrimage. You know, for me, getting getting into Oxford felt like a miracle. And it seemed as though what I had to do was sacrifice one miracle in exchange to be granted another. And so I prayed for it to be taken away um, for a long time. And then when it wasn't taken away, I still prayed to be cured. And now, of course, you you know, you're in a place where you're really happy in your sexuality and you're really happy to be gay. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how things change as you grow older and you develop as a person, isn't it? Yeah, I think by this point I am trying my best to be proud to be who I am you know and that's a that's a daily thing you you have to conduct yourself in a way that you can feel proud of when you go to bed at night and um my sexuality is is one important part of who I am and and the other parts of my identity are to equally important and I think that you know I was asked the other day whether or not I worry about being defined by this book and being known just for this. And my answer was, why would I worry about being known for being who I am? And that's how I feel, is all I've done is written about who I am. And I don't think there's anything embarrassing about it. I don't think there's anything that makes me superior. Um, Mm. Unfortunately, there are so many of us in our community that feel inferior because of the way we are. And so the book isn't about saying, look how brilliant this is. I mean, perhaps in some ways you can see it that way, but it's more about saying, look how normal this is. That's such a strange question to ask you because the book, I imagine, I'm sure, will uh, probably already and in the years to come is going to help so many people and it's going to be a source of comfort for so many people. So wouldn't it be great to be known for something that's really great quality that's critically acclaimed and that's going to help you know a huge amount of people out there 
Yeah, I mean, I think I've received so many messages of support from people, young and old, um, straight and gay, who have seen something in the book that they can really relate to. And I had one young man who wrote to me and said, reading your book gave me the courage to tell my parents. And I can't really ever, I guess, know what impact this book will have. But, yeah. having, but, but receiving messages like that are so humbling. And I feel so privileged to have been able to support that person in some way, just by talking about my experiences. And I, yeah, of course, that's, that's for me, as I said at the big outset, that's why I wrote the book. And I really hope that that continues. I mean, it, I mean, what I really hope is that one day nobody needs the book because we have got beyond this stigma. But until then, if it can provide some sort of support, then I can't ask for more. And that must be the most in- incredible feeling to know that you're having that sort of it positive impact on a person's life. And I agree with you there. I, I hope that we will get to a point where we don't need books like this, but we've got quite a long, long way to go yet. And you mentioned in the book you spent your third year of university in Amsterdam, so your third year of Oxford. So going there really afforded you the freedom and space to explore your sexuality. And so when your parents came to visit you there, you had to de-gay your bedroom. So can you tell me a little bit more about the de-gaying process? How did you go about that? Well, I enlisted the help of uh, my friends, so two or three of them. And basically, I I said to them, I need to remove any trace or suggestion of my sexuality in here. And so we kind of went went through the room with a fine tooth comb and they removed certain clothes, even though I didn't really think that many of my clothes would be suggestive of anything. But there we go. And um, I, we had this kind of quote wall where we would write down all the silly things we had said. And so many of them had some really quite slapstick gay humor in there and so okay had to remove a bunch of those quotes uh some books uh and then eventually i think i write that eventually when my friends suggested removing the pink highlighter i knew that we'd done a thorough job yeah because i was one i was like i was just thinking did he have loads of pictures of david beckham or somebody on his, <laughs> on his wall? No, no. no it was mainly kind of quotes and uh books uh because I was trying to explore my identity a bit. Yeah, so it was it was just kind of looking through drawers and making sure there's nothing that my mum might, might happen upon, you know? <laughs> yeah, because I'm just thinking of my uh, bedroom in my during my adolescence and it I never made an effort to de-gay it, but then I didn't pick up on the cues then. It was like covered in posters of Madonna and Kylie. It was like, you know, because I, I love a lot of gay divas. And I, I mean, it couldn't have been more blatantly obvious. Like, how did my family not know? Yeah. But I was just such a cliche. But, um, and so now I wanted to ask you about how you went about your coming out process. So you can tell me about it in your own way, of course. Sure. Well, I suppose the coming out process can mean so many different things, right? Because it can be coming out to yourself. It can be coming out to your yeah. um, first, the first person or to your parents. What would you like me to, to, to touch upon? I guess the first person you told, I guess the key people you yeah. told your your closest friends and family 
So the first person I told was my very wonderfully lovely friend Layla. And that was after a night out where I had orchestrated for us to end up in a gay club. But I pretended that I didn't know it was a gay club because I needed to just go inside and see what it was like. And as soon as I got in there, I knew straight away that I was definitely gay. I mean, I'd known anyway, but it was just, there was just no doubt. So that night we were staying at a friend's house and, and all, all of the other friends of ours went to bed, but I couldn't sleep. And Layla ended up sitting up with me. And it took me about three hours to eventually admit to her that I was gay. And it was one of the hardest moments of my life because I remember thinking that this is going to change things. And then fast forward to after seeing a therapist for a long time, finally telling my mum, which was a complicated um, situation. We had to take a week off of work. And then a couple of years later to telling my dad. And he, I had my bags packed when I told him because I was sure he was going to kick me out. But he didn't. Um, instead he told me that he loved me and that I was his son um, and that nothing had changed which was a wonderful reaction Uh, a week later though uh, there was a witch doctor brought to the house to try and cure me and those reactions a bit of you know what my dad first said and then what happened subsequently might seem as though they are inconsistent but it's important for me to emphasize that my dad's reaction was one of love, albeit misguided. He, mm. he, what he thought he was doing was helping me and saving me. And so, although it was really difficult for me to have to confront this person um, who was sent to cure me, I didn't hold it against them. And you mentioned that you were somewhat forced to come out to your father because of gossip in your local community so I was taken aback by that part because I always imagined in London you could be much more free and anonymous was that because your local Pakistani community is quite small um yeah I think basically once you're once you're from a community rather than just moving to a big city uh inevitably everybody knows everybody um, and it's the same with, I guess, the gay community. I mean, obviously, not so much in London, but even in London, right? You, you're only yeah. two or three people removed from somebody. So I think that every community in London has its sense of close proximity, if I can put it that way. Um, and the Pakistani community is no exception. And you mentioned there about your therapist. So one blessing during that really challenging period of your life was Maureen who was somebody who you really needed in your life you needed someone to go to and to be able to talk openly to and to have as a sounding board so can you tell me a little bit more about that so seeing Maureen was singularly the most pivotal moment in my life because she helped me to look at it differently and to think about the world differently. And without that help, without her being able to make me understand that there was space for me 
in all of this worry and all of this mess. I'm not sure I would have survived. And I now I'm such a big advocate for for mental health and for trying to, and telling people that it's really important that they talk to others and reach out when they need help because it really did change things for me. Yeah, because that's one of my regrets. I think I really should have went to a counsellor or a therapist much earlier than I did because it can make such a huge difference. I know it sounds a little bit Oprah-ish, but there's something so healing about just being heard and everything really intensifies when you're carrying the weight around um, of a certain of a problem or an issue purely by yourself. Well, it's never too late. If you really yeah, know. that's <laughs> that that um, that is that's true. I'm not suggesting you need therapy. No, it's fine. Don't worry. I know. I really do. <laughs> I I wouldn't be shocked if it was really really apparent. But your parents overcame their prejudices with time, didn't they? They did. They did, and. Uh, now they love my fiance Matthew more than they love me, which I think means that I'm marrying the right person. <laughs> and isn't that incredible? Did you ever imagine in your wildest dreams that something like that would ever happen? Absolutely not. Um, I thought at best they might meet once. Uh, I never could have imagined that my mum would you know, want to cook him his favourite meal that she makes uh, when he comes over and, you know, is excited to see him, more excited than she is to see her sons. Um, And I just think it's wonderful. You know, people can really surprise you, can't they? Yeah, and, and that's one of the important messages from the book, I guess, is that there are so many different ways of being and of, I guess, getting through something. And for me, I never, I always, I guess, hoped that this would happen, but never thought it would. And you know, one, one of the main reasons that it was important to write the book was because of that, was to say, like, look at what is possible. It's just the religious and cultural conditioning is so deeply embedded for a lot of people from I suppose, our parents' generation. And it's just, it's been deeply entrenched for decades and decades. And, you know, you can't change it overnight. I know sometimes when you come out, you really wish that it would, but it's like a process. It's like a whole unraveling and questioning your beliefs and how you see the world and starting from scratch with it, isn't it? Yeah, completely. And it's interesting that you, you know, make the comparison between the two of us, because actually, I think that's completely right. There are so many ways in which when you look at this book, you might think, oh, this is really niche. I don't know how I would possibly relate to it. But actually, so many of the experiences that I write about, I feel like have resonated with people who are from completely different um, backgrounds to me. Yeah, I think I experienced it maybe to a lesser degree, but there was some of that there also with my coming out experiences. And your parents, they have even started an LGBTQ charity now. Is that right? Not quite. I um, no. <laughs> no, um, I have been working with a group called the Inclusive Mosque Initiative to um, set up a support group for the families of LGBT Muslims. And my parents attend that group. 
Okay, so I, I I got that one wrong. I'll edit that bit out. I don't know where I got that from. So, um, but your parents they're even helping you to plan for your wedding now, aren't they? They are. So they um they they went ring shopping with me, um, when I was going to propose, and unfortunately the wedding had to be postponed because of COVID. We were supposed yeah. to be getting married in Ireland in April, but um, you know they're still they're still ready to to party and to to help us celebrate when the time is right. So fingers crossed for next year, hopefully. And my sister had to cancel her wedding in August as well. So I also want to ask you about in the book, there's an ugly truth about the gay community in that racism is quite prevalent within the community, especially on dating apps. And you write in the book about how you have experienced this yourself firsthand. So what impact did the did those experiences have on you and how have you processed them over time you know coming from a a minority background where you feel like there might not be any place for you it to me it was like leaving my community and i and i thought that i was joining a new community and i and i believe that now but i when i joined the lgbt community so to speak in an active sense, I should say, because I was born a part of it, um, experiencing racism and prejudice was difficult because it made me feel even more alone because I had left or seemingly left one group and was trying to find a place somewhere else but was being told that, that there wasn't one for me. So I think that those experiences can make people of colour feel like there is nowhere for them. And mm. that, is, that, is a, that, is a, that is a kind of situation that I think needs to change. Um, and I think that apps like Grindr have a lot to answer for with their ethnicity filters that allow people to just pretend that people of colour don't exist. Yeah, obviously as a, as a Caucasian man, I can't, you know, relate to what that must be. And I can't even imagine how hard and hurtful it must be when you feel so isolated growing up and then to have those experiences from the community that should be accepting and welcoming of you. I just can't even fathom what that must be like. I mean, I've definitely experienced the fickleness of the LGBTQ community, but obviously that isn't something I can directly relate to. And I wanted to ask you about, so did you ever have to come out at work and has it ever been an issue? You had one very memorable coming out with one of your superiors, didn't you? Yeah, so generally speaking, it's it's been absolutely fine because um, I've, you know, I work in, in the legal industry in London. So I've, I've been very, very privileged in that way. I did have to come out to my boss for a year that was a Supreme Court judge because I was working there for a year and when I told him he said he already knew I remember thinking oh okay fine that's okay but he's then he rushed to say look not because I could tell her anything um but because um I had lent him my iPad and unbeknownst to me the messages from my phone had synced with my iPad which meant that he could see all these colourful text messages I was receiving over the weekend <laughs> from a young man called Alejandro. So um, it was, yeah, that was not my finest hour, probably the most embarrassing moment of my life. But 
my boss took it really well and it just I guess I learned from it how easy it could be to just be yourself that it didn't always have to be loaded with shame or a sense of otherness it could just be I'm really sorry, Mossin, for making you tell that story again. I know I heard it already on the Elizabeth Day podcast and I just thought it deserved a second outing. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> sorry, but he was really good about it, wasn't he? Yeah, he was absolutely lovely about it and he was really supportive and we're still friends today. And I wanted to ask you, you mentioned there you are engaged to an Irishman. So as an Irishman myself, I just wanted to quickly ask you before we finish up, I was really curious to learn, have you learned any Irish vernacular yet or any Irish slang language? Um, oh, God, yeah, you're going to be putting me on the spot now. Yes, I have. So he's from Newry. So these are these are oh, okay. But um so messages is like bits and bobs and admin like tasks okay. um okay. some messages uh saying hello by saying well say well when they answer the phone yeah um, yeah what else uh and then you say you know how is everything and and uh, the response will be nothing strange or startling which i think is fantastic <laughs> <laughs> what else i mean there are just, there's quite a few but uh those are the ones that come to mind straight away that's good. You've you've absorbed a good number of Irishisms already. And I feel so bad asking you so many tough, harrowing questions. So I'm going to finish the podcast on a lighter note. So I noticed when reading the book, one name which kept popping up throughout was somebody who I assume you're a really big fan of and someone who I'm a huge fan of. Uh, do you know who it is? Can you remember? It's got to be Mariah. You've got to be talking yeah, about Mariah. Yeah, it's, it's Mariah Carey. So I was just wondering, what is it about Mariah or her music? Maybe perhaps I'm reading too deeply into it. But what is it about her that resonates with you? Well, first of all, her music is absolutely fantastic. So that's where we should start. Yes. Her voice is amazing. Um, I grew up listening to her. And I remember cleaning the house to Mariah Carey. And my mum loved her. And so at first, it was an association with just this really happy time where my mum would put music on and we would clean the house, which I know sounds miserable to a lot of people, but I just associate it with uh, a really uncomplicated phase of life because right. I, I don't think I knew, you know, I didn't have, I, I was gay, but I had no idea I was gay because I was too young. And if I had to put my finger on it, I guess it would be that. It's just this, it's just this moment in time where I wasn't weighed down by anything. And so I guess that's probably where it stems from. And yeah, so I, I now I associate Mariah Carey with, with that. And that's really special. And I will always love her for it and be very grateful. And I don't think it's a coincidence that our memoirs were released within four weeks of each other. Yes. <laughs> that's what, once I finished yours, I started on Mariah's. Oh, wow. I mean, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if I'd want to, <laughs> Uh, want to go up just before hers but um because apparently hers is brilliant and i'm going to read it but uh, yeah i'm sure that's yeah she co-wrote it with an editor of some american magazine and it's really really well written uh yeah no because i just wanted to ask you that because there's something about mariah and i i really i just feel very strongly about her i get very upset if anybody says anything negative about her so <laughs> well i'm there with you 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mawson, thank you so much for your time today and for coming on my podcast. Thank you for sharing your story. I know it's going to help so many people in the years to come. And sorry about all the technical di- difficulties. And I can let you go and get on with your Sunday afternoon. And best of luck with, the, with, with your legal work and your future writing projects. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been so lovely to chat to you, especially now that I know you're a Mariah Carey fan. Yes, <laughs> we have that connection. Mawson, thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye.